0: preacher cut his face while shaving on a Sunday morning and when he got to church somebody asked him what's wrong and he explained that he was kind of concentrating on his sermon while he was shaving and he cut his face and the fellow at church said well it sounds like to me you need to kind of concentrate more on your face and cut the sermon a little bit but (laughs) today I have cut this lesson I think about as much as I possibly can and We're going to be talking about a very basic Bible subject today, one that I've chosen to entitle, How Do We Establish Bible Authority? You know, if we just casually observe the Lord's Church today, we can see in a lot of cases that many want to go beyond what actually has been written in God's Word. Certainly as we think about our culture today, we think about relativism, we think about political correctness. We even think about what kind of efforts are underway to even ban the Bible in some places because of so-called hate speech that they accuse the Bible of having. When we think about what's going on, I think it's very important for us to understand what the Bible actually says. But what God has said with a lot of people really doesn't seem to be sufficient. It doesn't really seem to be enough. And the reason is there are certain brethren that want to do some things and engage in activities. And try to find ways to justify those activities. Certainly one characteristic of our culture today is that we are very entertainment driven. And so people want to bring that into the worship assembly. We want to try to turn the worship assembly into something that entertains. And so there's that pressure there, the pressure to even bring in instruments of music into worship. Or we think about the role of women in leadership. Many efforts are underway today to try to expand leadership roles for women so that we have women preachers and even women serving as elders and deacons. Even in the realm of morality, we find many who want to compromise. But we need to realize once you begin to compromise in lifestyle or in doctrine, you will compromise in lifestyle. And I think even in the Lord's church, especially among younger people, and that's why I hope our youngsters will listen very carefully today. I think there's a need to reaffirm how we are to establish Bible authority because I believe all of us need to cultivate a greater respect for exactly what the Bible says and do exactly what the Bible commands. And that's why I want to talk about today the importance of establishing proper Bible authority. Now, I'll say in the outset, I don't know if this lesson is going to be the most interesting lesson you've ever heard. But I do believe it may be the most important sermon you'll ever hear. And that's why I want to challenge you today to please listen very carefully to the things that are said maybe take notes and try to think about what we're saying today now may i point out first of all today to establish bible authority we must understand that everything is to be done in the name of and by the authority of the lord jesus christ now what's the key verse of authority in the bible well you ask our children they'll tell you hopefully you've listened as well they'll tell you Colossians 3:17 whatever you do in word or in deed do all in the name of the Lord whatever you teach whatever you practice do it by the Lord's authority You'll recall the religious leaders asked the apostles in Acts 4 and verse 7, they said, by what power, what name, by by what authority have you done this? And so we as Christians today need to try to do all things in the name of Jesus Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, we are to endeavor to walk by faith. How do we walk by faith? How do we we live by faith today? Well, obviously and simply, if you look at Romans 10 and verse 17, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And therefore, a Christian today must endeavor to walk and to live and to conduct himself according to what the Bible says. We must walk by faith which comes by the word of God. Now the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so unless we can do things because the Bible says to do them, and unless we can allow the Bible to direct us in matters of religion and do it by faith, then we cannot be pleasing to the God of heaven. Therefore, everything we do must be done in the name of the Lord, by his authority, or else we can have no faith. That just simply means that we must be willing to do what the Bible says because the Bible says to do it. Now, in the next place, I want to point out that for us to establish Bible authority, obviously not all commands And examples in the Bible apply to us today. Think about some examples from the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel offered a sacrifice to God that was well-pleasing. Are we today to offer a sacrifice to God that's well-pleasing? In Genesis 6 and verse 14, Noah was commanded to build an ark. Are we commanded to build an ark like Noah? Well, maybe after the rain this afternoon, we may think we should. In Genesis chapter 12, the Bible says that Abraham built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Are we likewise today to build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord? In Exodus 25 and verse 40, Moses built a tabernacle according to the pattern. Must we today likewise build a tabernacle according to the pattern? God's pattern to worship God? Well, certainly not. In Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16, we read that all the male Jews were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship God. Males, men, do we need to go to Jerusalem today three times a year to worship God? You see, obviously, these are commands Found in the Old Testament and they're given to a particular people for a particular reason and they simply do not apply to us today. Well, what about the New Testament? Do all New Testament commands apply to us today? Well, definitely not. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 21 and verse 2, go into the village and you'll find a colt tied Must we today go into a village and find a colt that is tied? Or in Luke 24 and verse 49, the Lord said to the apostles, You tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now, must we today likewise go to Jerusalem? And must we wait to be endued with power from on high? Now, we might go to Jerusalem. But I can tell you one thing, we're not going to be endued with power from on high because that applied to the Lord's apostles previous to the establishment of the church. Or in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 28, we find the command, if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Does that command apply to us today? Definitely not. Not because that referred to an assembly where miraculous spiritual gifts were being exercised and we don't have an assembly today where those kinds of miraculous spiritual gifts are being used. You see, these are commands that are found in the New Testament, but just because they're in the New Testament, that does not mean that Every command applies to us. And I hope we can rather readily see that. But also, if we're going to establish biblical authority, I think there are some basic distinctions that must be made that we need to understand. If we're going to handle correctly the word of God, we have to use some good, sound common sense and judgment and Bible knowledge about other subjects to establish Bible authority. And of course, if we're going to establish proper Bible authority, we need to make that distinguish distinguishing mark between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 28, for this is my blood of the new testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins the hebrews writer said in chapter 9 and verse 15 and for this cause he christ is the mediator of the new testament the reason that our lord is the mediator of the new testament is because his death made possible his will The New Testament came into existence because of our Lord's death. And now we need to realize that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the New Testament. Colossians 2 and verse 14 makes it very clear that that Old Testament law was nailed to the cross. It was taken out of the way. All those from the time of Adam down the century through the prophets, those in the patriarchal age... Those individuals were living under the Old Testament law until Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. But every one of us that's lived since the cross until the Lord comes again, we're going to be judged by the New Testament. And so there's got to be that basic distinction made between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And also, if we're going to make these kinds of distinctions, we need to distinguish between matters of faith and matters of opinion. For example, in John 3 and verse 2, we know that Jesus, I should say Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. The Bible says that. I believe by faith he came by night. Why? Because the Bible says so. Now, folks, I've got an opinion as to why he came by night. The New Testament nowhere tells us why he came by night, but I have an opinion as to why he came by night. But I have no right to try to force your opinion or my opinion on you and vice versa. See, in matters of opinion, yours is just as good as mine, and mine is just as good as yours. Or you think about John Mark in Acts chapter 13. You recall in Acts 13 and verse 13 that John Mark turned back in Perga and he went not with them to the work. Obviously, John Mark had repented. Well, it became time for that second missionary journey. Paul didn't think it was good to take John Mark with them this time, even though he had repented. He just didn't really trust him, I don't think at this particular point. Acts 15:38 says Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Barnabas determined to take with them John Mark, and the Bible says the contention was so sharp that they parted company one from another. Barnabas took Mark just like he intended to and sailed to Cyprus. Now folks here is that an example of two outstanding gospel preachers disagreeing sharply on matters of opinion. Mark had repented. Barnabas thought that everything was okay. Paul said no, one time he did not remain faithful, and I just really don't. Think it's good for him to go right now. It was a matter of opinion. And yet, because they differed, now you've got two missionary teams instead of one. Everything turned out well. We need to understand the Bible does not demand unity in matters of opinion and judgment. Now, certainly, we need to be united together. But when it comes to matters of opinion and judgment, we don't have to have agreement. And also, we need to be able to distinguish between the temporary and the permanent things in order to properly establish Bible authority. Now, I want you to get this point very carefully. You remember when the Lord's Church began... The New Testament as we have it today was not yet in written form. When Jesus went back into heaven, back to his father, he told his apostles in John 16 and verse 13 that I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send to you the comforter and he's going to come and he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to bring all things to your remembrance And you'll recall in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, how they had those many miraculous spiritual gifts that that existed there in the church. And and these were given to guide that infant church back in the first century because the New Testament was not yet written. Now the Hebrews writer says in chapters 2 and verse 3 that the purpose of all these miraculous spiritual gifts was to confirm the word to verify what they were saying was right now we live in an age today when it's not all that uncommon to hear people say you know the lord spoke to me or you know the lord put this on my heart folks when god speaks What God says has always been confirmed in some way that will leave no doubt in anybody's mind. And so the purpose of these miraculous spiritual gifts was to confirm the word. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10, when that which is perfect is come talking about the word of God, then that which is in part the miraculous spiritual gifts will be done away with. And so what Paul is saying here is, is when the word of God is finally completed, when it's finally revealed in written form, when you have the perfect word of God, these spiritual gifts are going to cease to exist. You might think about it this way. If you're building a a structure, a building, you put scaffolding many times around that building while it's being built. Well, when it came to the church of the first century, it had to have that scaffolding. That scaffolding was the miraculous spiritual gifts that were given to guide that infant church until the Bible was completely revealed. What would you think about somebody after they completed a very beautiful building, a beautiful structure, if they just left the scaffolding up? You'd think they're crazy, wouldn't you? Well, some people today want to leave up the scaffolding in the New Testament church. They want to keep the miraculous spiritual gifts, but their purpose has been done away with because now we have the complete revealed word of God. And then you turn to some place like Acts 8, 5 through 17, and, and we learn beyond any doubt that only the apostles could impart the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. They were the only ones. And therefore, when the last apostle died and the people on whom they had laid their hands died, then all those spiritual gifts ceased. But now we're blessed to have those ancient words we sung about this morning in revealed written form. It's verified by the word of God that we can read and study. And so for us to establish Bible authority, we have to distinguish between things that are permanent and things that are temporary and also to establish bible authority we have to distinguish between circumstances that just happen to be there and actual conditions for one's salvation in acts chapter 16 verses 12 through 15 we read about lydia and how she obeyed the gospel we read about how paul went there on the sabbath day down by the river and Many women were assembled in prayer. Now, Everything that I've mentioned thus far is strictly circumstances surrounding her conversion. The meeting by the river, the gathering of the women, the sitting down that's described there didn't have one thing at all to do with their salvation. But when the Bible talks about Paul preaching to them and them hearing the word of God and believing it and being baptized, that was the condition of Lydia's salvation. That same chapter, we read about the jailer in Acts 16, 12, I should say 25 through 34. We read about a man who had beat Paul and Silas, and Paul and Silas were cast into prison. Their feet were in stocks, and we read about them singing and the prisoners hearing them. And then we read about that great earthquake. The foundation of the prison was shaken. All the bands were loosed. All this is simply circumstances surrounding the jailer's conversion. The actual conditions of his conversion is when Paul preached to them, when they heard his preaching, they believed it, and they were baptized. And so we have to distinguish between external circumstances and the actual conditions of one's salvation. And akin to that, we also need to be able to distinguish between those things that are actually essential and those things that are merely incidental. Now I want you to think about Paul's missionary journey to Macedonia in Acts 16, 9 through 12. Paul received that vision, a man of Macedonia saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul realized that he should go to Macedonia Paul knew God wanted him to go there to preach. Verse 11, the Bible says they loosed. They traveled by boat to Macedonia. Now, folks, they could have just as well gone by land. Going by boat is incidental. What was essential was them going to Macedonia and preaching. How they went was merely incidental. Or you think about the Lord's Supper at Troas in Acts twenty seven through 9. The Bible says they met on the first day of the week to break bread and Paul preached unto them. These same verses also say they met in an upper chamber on the third floor with many lights. Now you think about that. Meeting on the first day of the week. Taking the Lord's Supper, the worship, that's the essential matter. It was purely incidental that they happened to be meeting on the third floor. The many lights mentioned there are incidental. They could have just as well met on the first floor or the second floor and had few lights. You see, to establish Bible authority, we must distinguish between the incidental and the essential. And also to establish basic Bible authority, we have to distinguish between custom and the law of God. And if we're not careful sometimes, we may allow custom to keep us from understanding what the Bible says. Think about the example of the dress of women in regard to wearing the veil in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 through 16. We haven't got time today to Talk about this verse in detail at all. Paul's not saying here that women are to wear a veil in worship and everything they do and everywhere that they go, but back at this particular time in that culture, the veil was a sign of submission to male leadership. Paul said if a woman refuses to wear the veil, she might as well just shave her head, which was symbolic of being a prostitute. Paul condemned them if they rebelled against that particular cultural setting. Now today, where we live, wearing a veil is not a symbol of submitting to male leadership. Now you might visit a country or there's some countries particularly in the Middle East where wearing a veil would still be submissive to the headship of man. You ought to wear a veil because that's a biblical principle. But today, not wearing a veil or wearing a veil means nothing In our culture. And so we've got to distinguish between what custom is and what the Bible actually says. But in the fourth place, may I point out to you that God has always, always only accepted that which is authorized. In Genesis 4, Cain's worship was not accepted because it wasn't authorized. Abel's worship was authorized. It was by faith. In Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, we read about Nadab and Abihu and how God killed them because they used fire that God had not authorized. And yet in Hebrews 13, verse 9, we're warned about being carried away with strange doctrines. In Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Paul warned about perverting and changing and twisting the Word of God. Brethren, we need to understand that both liberalism and antiism are wrong. Antiism seeks to make laws where God didn't make laws, liberalism tries to disregard the laws that God made. Antiism treats matters of opinion as if they were matters of faith. Liberalism, on the other hand, treats matters of faith as if they were matters of opinion. Antiism seeks to bind where God is loosed, and liberalism seeks to loose where God is bound. And in backing away from antiism, sometimes people just fall headlong into liberalism. And in backing away from liberalism, sometimes people swing to the opposite end of the pendulum by falling into antiism. And so we need to realize the importance of always avoiding the extremes if we're going to properly establish Bible authority. Number five, though, how is Bible authority not established? God does not establish Bible authority based upon my opinion or on my likes or dislikes. Bible authority is not established based upon what culture says or what society dictates. Bible authority is not based upon what some well-known or well-thought-of preacher may say or write. Bible authority is not based upon traditions. You know, how we may have always done things. Well, how is Bible authority then established? I want to point out very briefly, I wish I had more time on this. Bible authority always has to take into account the silence of the scriptures. The Bible authorizes folks by what it says as well as by what it doesn't say. And what it doesn't say is just as important as what it says. In fact, in the Bible, we have an example of the silence of the scriptures being used. The Hebrew writer made it very plain that Jesus could not be a priest under that Old Testament system. Why? Because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7 and verse 14 says, it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. The Bible nowhere said no priest can ever come out of Judah. The Bible's silent in their regard. Therefore, there's no authority for it. And so Jesus could not have been a priest in the Old Testament because Moses said absolutely nothing about priests coming out of any tribe except for the tribe of Levi. Levi. Moses didn't have to say, no priest can come out of Judah. When God spoke, his silence is just as authoritative. And then you think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, how that we're not to go beyond the things that have been written. Getting down to the point itself, how is basic Bible authority Established. Well, I want to suggest to you that Bible authority is established by examples that are approved. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, we read that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper. Acts 20 and verse 7 talks about the Lord's Supper being taken on the first day of the week. Now, folks, there's no authority for us to do it any differently. But Acts 20 and verse 7 also permits us to partake of the Lord's Supper in an upper chamber on the third floor with many lights. Sometimes examples permit us to do something that we may do or that we must do. And whether an example approves actions that may be done or must be done depends on what the Bible says about the same subject in other places. Some New Testament examples are not approved. Judas betrayed the Lord in Matthew 26. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about their giving in Acts 5. John Mark turned back in Acts 13. We don't follow those examples, but we do follow approved examples. And that's exactly why they're there. But Bible authority is also established not only by approved examples but it's also established by implication or inference. Now folks, what I'm talking about is just plain, ordinary common sense. We know that common sense isn't all that common today in our culture, don't we? But it's just how people communicate. This is how communication is done. People that want to argue with how Bible authority is ascertained if they applied those same principles to how we communicate today, we'd have chaos in the world today. Everything the Bible teaches, it teaches by a direct statement or what's implied by those statements. And what is implied is just as important as what is directly stated. For example, I'm convinced we are authorized today To teach that Paul the Apostle repented when he became a Christian. But did you realize there's not one single verse in all the Bible that tells us that Paul repented? And so we reason. And implication involves reasoning. What's the reasoning? Nobody can become a Christian without repenting. Luke 13, 3 Paul became a Christian, therefore we, by implication, know Paul repented because you can't become a Christian unless you repent. Therefore, by implication, we understand Paul repented. Or in Acts 17, verse 12, we see those Bereans were those that believed in God. That implies that they heard the word of God because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, verse 17. If they believed, we understand that they heard by implication. And then the Bible authorizes not only by approved example and by implication, but it also authorizes by direct statement. And perhaps this is the easiest way that we can understand. For example, Jesus said, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. Peter's direct statement, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. Or Mark 16, verse 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. We understand those direct statements. But folks, the Bible teaches just as well and just as plainly and just as authoritatively by example and also by implication. But then I want to suggest to you as well, the Bible also authorizes by expediency as well as these other things. And I want you to listen very carefully about this. Expediency always involves human judgment when God tells us to do something but he never specifies exactly how it's to be done then expediency or human judgment comes into play for example in matters of congregational activity the elders of the church are the authority when it comes to matters of expediency Now, no elder in the Lord's church has the right ever to change God's word. It is wrong, I believe, as has been done in some places for an eldership to stand up before the church and say, you know, we need to incorporate instrumental music into our assembly if we're going to reach more people. That's a conclusion that we've reached and therefore we need to implement that. No elder has the right to do that because God has already spoken. I don't think an eldership even has the right to stand up before a church and say, we're going to continue our practice of a cappella music in our worship because that's how we've always done things. Well, If that's your reason for doing it, that can change in one generation. The reason we don't use it is because of God's authority. But elders do rule and they have the right to rule in matters of expediency. For example, they can determine what area of work we're going to do our mission work in, elders can determine who the preacher is going to be in this congregation. They can determine many other things that have to be made in areas of judgment. In fact, many things, I believe, are authorized based upon expediency. For example, we're commanded to worship, aren't we? But the Lord didn't say where. We could worship outside if we wanted to. Or we could rent a schoolhouse or a building somewhere. Or we could meet in a beautiful facility like we have today. It's authorized by expediency. We've been given the command in the Bible to baptize. That's one of the last things the Lord commanded. We could do it in a stream. We could do it in a lake or a swimming pool or the ocean. Or we could use a baptistry as we have here today. We've been given the command to partake of the Lord's Supper. Someone says, well, you know, where's the authority for having all... These little cups in these aluminum trays, the Lord didn't say, "You have to have aluminum trays." But see, when God gave a command to have the Lord's Supper, that made it of necessity that there be some kind of container. It could be a plastic cup, it could be paper cups, it could be plastic, any, any kind of material that you wanted. The command of the Lord's Supper demands some kind of container. Now, I'm convinced when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, if there happened to be a tray like we have today, I think you would have used that as well. And some people today say that, you know, we need to use just one cup because that's what they did. Now, you know that I'm a germaphobic, Right? That would be the most difficult for me command for me to obey if we were required to use one cup, particularly in flu season. I guarantee you one thing, those back rows would be empty. We'd oh, want to be the first one up, right? And not the last. But you see, the fact we need to understand is when the Lord partook of the Lord's supper, it authorizes some kind of container. The issue is, is what's in the cup. It's not the cup itself. I'm convinced this microphone is authorized because the Bible commands us to preach. The public address system aids us in the preaching. Without it, many people couldn't hear what was said. Now, think about this, for example. How is an addition distinguished from an aid? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we distinguish an aid from an addition? Well, an addition occurs when a particular action has been altered or the fundamental composition or substance of a thing has been changed. An aid alters nothing. It merely facilitates the implementation of the action or substance without changing anything. For example, a mother sends her son to the market to buy a loaf of bread. He brings the bread home in a bag. The bag is merely an aid. Now, should the boy purchase a candy bar as well, he's disregarded the authority of his mother by an addition. Now, there is vocal music and there is mechanical music. Mechanical music is an addition in that the particular action is altered. The substance of a thing has been changed. And whenever the church commences the praise portion of its service, the saints may sing because that's enjoined by God. And Christians may use songbooks. We can use a projection screen. We can use a pitch pipe or a tuning fork to get the appropriate pitch. But in the final analysis of it all, we're still only singing. On the other hand, if the church... Seems to the accompaniment of an organ or a piano or a praise band, those thus participating have added something to which the Lord authorized. And now there are two types of music, vocal and instrumental. The nature of this command has now been supplemented. Very quickly, though, and in closing, quickly, How does all this apply to us today? What does it mean to us? We need to understand that God will only accept what is authorized. That's always been the case from the Old Testament down to the New Testament. And when when anything in the Bible is not authorized by approved example, by implication, by direct statement, or by expediency, then we have no right to engage in that activity or that doctrine and folks keep in mind that these are just common sense principles of communication that we use every day when we talk to one another when we talk to our children you know you tell your son it's time to come in you need to go take your bath well 30 minutes later you go back there and you find him playing with his toys son i told you to take a bath didn't i no you didn't say i couldn't play with my toys did you you see, if we try, as many people to do today, if we try to, to do to the Bible what we do, uh, if we try to do in everyday life what we do with the Bible, there's going to be chaos. This is how people communicate. This is how God communicates to us. Think about some practical things that bring it home. I don't say this in a derogatory manner at all, but the Catholic Church counts beads in their worship. Why is it wrong to count beads in worship? The Bible never says don't count beads. It's wrong because it's not authorized. What would be wrong with us burning incense down the front in our worship? What would be wrong with offering an animal sacrifice? You can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says you can't use incense or offer an animal, animal sacrifice in worship. Why would it be wrong? Because it's not authorized. Somebody says, well, I wonder if it wouldn't be more convenient On Thursday night, to assemble, to partake of the Lord's Supper, we could just make it so much more meaningful and focus all of our time on that. Why can't we do that? Why can't we have the Lord's Supper when, let's say, there's a wedding going on or maybe the elders have the Lord's Supper as some practice that before any elders meeting that they have? Why can't we do that? Well, there's just one reason it's not authorized anywhere in the Bible. Somebody says, you know, this bread in the Lord's Supper is so flat-tasty. And I admit it, sometimes it tastes like cardboard, doesn't it? Right? You know, what would be wrong with having iced tea? Sweet tea and maybe a graham cracker. Would there be anything wrong with that at all? The Bible nowhere says you you can't use sweet tea. It nowhere says you can't use a graham cracker. The reason it would be wrong is because God's told us what to use, and it's not authorized. And I don't know why anybody would prefer instrumental music over over the beautiful singing we have here. But that's not the reason we don't use instrumental music. The reason we don't use instrumental music in our worship is because it's not authorized. I challenge anybody anywhere to find a verse that says, you shall not use a piano. Well, if it doesn't say it, what's wrong with it? It's wrong because it's not authorized anywhere in the Bible. Nine different times in the New Testament we were authorized to sing. Folks, instrumental music is not the issue. Instrumental music never has been the issue. The issue is God's authority. Brethren, we just need to get back. And I want to challenge all of you today. I want to challenge our young people, our college students. I want to challenge you to have strong convictions about what you believe. And those strong convictions to be based upon what God's word says and only the authority that's found therein. We need to have the attitude that whatever the Bible says, whatever the Bible teaches, we are going to respect its authority, that we're never going to go beyond the word of God to do more or to do less. If we do that, The Bible says we will be pleasing to our God. So this morning we're going to sing.